This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Perhaps hubristic idea of trying to argue you could use quantum mechanics to solve a 500-year-old theological debate between the Dominicans and Jesuits. Um, I, I think that's probably true, but, um, but I realized in some sense that uh, starting from zero to that in 40 minutes was just not going to work. And part of that actually comes out of um, a little bit of what Dr. Domesday had to say yesterday. Um, there was just a brief comment he made when the question about uh, indeterminism and determinism and, and um, should we have a preference between these? And he made the comment that there, there are Christians who have tried to reconcile just about every possible list of combinations of determinism and indeterminism at different levels in the natural order uh, and, and freedom or not freedom. And, and so there are well-meaning uh, uh, thinkers and really, really smart people who have approached this sort of question. Um, and uh, there's a way in which I think uh, there's a lot of good fruit to draw out of that. But I think sometimes there's a problem where we end up, we end up solving the problem in a way that leaves us with a picture of who God is that's a little bit distorted. Um, and so we, we need to be very careful when we talk about God's providence and God's knowledge and God's activity that we're actually talking about God's providence and God's knowledge and God's activity and not something else. Like what else would we be talking about? Well, I mean, it turns out, I don't know about you, like the only knowledge I know about is my own. Um, and the, the actions I am most familiar with are, are my own. And there's a way in which that's the, the gut instinct that I bring to any of these kinds of conversations. It's not unlike, you know, the, the realization that, you know, when you're going to teach freshman physics, you don't just walk in day one and start writing down F equals MA and, uh, um, uh, and, and uh, you know, much, much worse than Schrodinger's equation. You have to approach the students where they are. Because it turns out the students have been in the physical world for 18 to 20 some years, depending on when you catch them. Uh, and they're pretty good at dealing with the physical world. You know, they know how to open doors and they know how to close doors. They know how to drive and ride bikes. I mean, if they, if they didn't figure that out, they probably wouldn't be in your class at that point. Um, uh, so they have a, a, a natural instinct about how the physical world works. Um, that's not wrong. It's just not, it doesn't have some of the precision and the distinctions that help to make physics so powerful. Um, that if, if they just bring the sort of experience we have from opening doors and closing doors and driving and riding bikes and just take that and try to, and, and, and um, without care, try to sort of plug that into some math equations, it ends up getting distorted and weird. Um, in a similar way, when we start to think about God's knowledge and we start immediately trying to think like, okay, what would it be like to know everything? It's like, it turns out we're going to import a ton of ourselves into that. Uh, and so what I'm going to try to do in the, the, the first part of this talk is to spend just time talking about, okay, well, how do we know things? How do we do things? And just at a base level, try to understand ourselves a bit better so that when we, and then, and then uh, there will be a slight scriptural interlude to give us some sort of instinct about the ways in which that might be different for God. And then try to argue for what from particularly from the kind of the Thomist tradition of why it is like what it is, what, what the difference is in God's knowledge uh, in our knowledge, how it is like ours and yet not like ours. So that's that's the goal of what I'm hoping to do today. So um, let's start with our knowledge. All right. Right now, 
I know that there are three people in the front row of the audience. I didn't know that when I wrote the, I, 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 there's a blank in my notes. I didn't, I didn't know that then. Like right now, I know that. Like, why do I know that? Well, because my eyes are receiving a certain amount of light bouncing off of them and, and that's, that's entering into my eyes. The, you know, uh, okay, this is the physicist story. Uh, it's, 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 it's interacting with the photoreceptors on the eyes, interacting with the neurons. The brain is reconstructing something of, a, uh, something of an image that's, you know, three-dimensional in a certain structure. And I have enough experience dealing with people. And in fact, now enough experience dealing with these three people that I'm fairly certain it's not an illusion. There's not that somebody like came in and painted with just the right perspective on the floor, like people looking things that there's actually people here. And if I, you know, move around a little bit, not if anybody, you know, was rude enough to go poke them, I'd have a much better knowledge of like, yes, there are three people in the audience, uh, three people in, in the front row. Now there could have been four or up to six, I guess. I didn't even know how many chairs there were going to be, or it could have been none. It, it looked like, like at the beginning of the talk, it looked like there might've been none because, you know, good Catholics always in the back. Um, but thankfully a few people showed up. So thank you. Um, so it, and, um, it is in fact in, in, in a pretty real sense, well, okay. Um, yes, it is not possible that there are not three people in those chairs right now. Like I have a knowledge of that. Now we can argue about, okay, well, it took like a certain number of nanoseconds for the light to get to me. So like maybe they disappeared between the moment I, but Broadly speaking, uh, I'm, I'm going to set aside really skeptical arguments and argue that there's something about my like access to the sensible, uh, um, uh, the, the, the sense perception of them that tells me something real about what's going on right now. I could say, right, um, but so like they are there um, and for right now, like well, since they're very polite people and they're sitting there, um, they're, they're not changing that. In theory, they could change that. I'm not forcing them to be there. They are perfectly free to be there, they chose to be there, but the fact that I know absolutely that there are three people right there, in no way forced them to be where they are. I received knowledge because of what, what impacted me, but I didn't, I, but in knowing that, that doesn't actually change the fact that they could decide to stand up at any point. I have, right now, I have pretty good knowledge that there will be three people in the front row in about 10 minutes. Uh, why? Well, I mean, I've noticed a kind of pattern this week. Um, I haven't noticed too many people like rudely standing up and walking out in the middle of the talk. Now, you haven't heard my talk yet, so maybe, maybe that will change. Um, and I could imagine a situation, uh, you know, um, and, and I can visualize the idea. Yeah, like it's pretty reasonable to me that, you know, if I close my eyes and think about well, what would the room look like 10 minutes from now? Yeah, there's probably going to be three people sitting over there. And unless somebody comes in really late, nobody's sitting over there. And I have a certain confidence in that but with the recognition that that's not perfect. It's, it would, I would not be completely shocked if in 10 minutes there's only two people or there's four people. Um, there's a sense in which my knowledge of that is not the same as my knowledge of the fact that right now there are three people. Uh, I also have knowledge that, you know, when I started this talk, there were three, there were three people sitting in the front row. And my knowledge of that is pretty good. Like I, I, my, my memory is not that bad yet. Um, I, I, like I remember that, you know, I, I was actually like paying close attention because I was worried because nobody was coming. And so I was actually counting them as they came in. And so I have a, a very like focused memory of the fact that there were three people at the, at, in the front row at the beginning of the talk. Uh, and you know, if I, uh, yeah, so, and if you asked me 40 years from now, how many people were in, in the front row at the beginning of this talk, depending on how good my memory is, I mean, I might remember that, I might not. There's a way in which there's a, there's, a, there's a certain loss. It depends on how well I can maintain sort of the, 
the imaginative, the, the memorative aspect of what's going on in my brain. So the, the way that I know what's going on now and what I know, I what, I, uh, what I might know about the future and how well I know something about the future and what I know about the past, there's something different about those three things. Yeah, so there's this difference with respect to me at least about what has happened, what is happening and what will happen. So now let's talk about like doing stuff. All right, so I want, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna make something happen. Darn it. Okay, um, I really, really, really tried. I really wanted a cup of coffee and I really like really, really wanted Father Jonah to go out and give me a cup of coffee and he just didn't. Like I thought really, really hard about it, but nothing happened. Now, I mean, I guess I could, you know, I, uh, I, I could just, you know, yell out very rudely, Father Jonah, give me some coffee. Um, but I, I actually know him a little bit and he's kind of not the sort of person to respond well to, to, to rude interruptions, particularly in public. Um, I could maybe try to text him, but he's always not so great about responding that too quickly. Um, I could, I mean, I, if I, I do know, one thing I do know about Father Jonah is that he's actually very susceptible to, to like whimsical acts of fancy. So if I uh, took a nice paper airplane and wrote a note to Father Jonah, Father Jonah, get me some coffee. All right, then I'll take my paper airplane. And here we go. All right, let me, let me try again. Uh, no, no. Um, so I really wanted that paper airplane to like fly through the air and land in his lap and then he'd be awesomely uh, impressed by it. It's like, dude, and so he's like so impressed he was gonna go give me coffee. I don't actually want any coffee, so don't, don't feel, don't feel pressured. <laughs> um, I could also, in, yeah, alternatively, I could have just kept folding paper airplanes and tried to get the really good one. I could have like gone back to that YouTube video I watched a while back about guys, you know, like the perfect paper airplane <laughs> and figured out exactly how to get it to fly exactly to land on his lap. And if I tried really, really hard and, and, and had enough time, now uh, by that point, there would probably no longer be three people in the front row. Um, <laughs> but you can imagine a situation, you know, you can kind of go science fiction-y on it and get into the, the like the, 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 the Groundhog's Day or you know, the, more, the modernized sci-fi, die another day sort of thing, where it's like, if I had like practice, if, if, if I had like really, really good knowledge of how he was going to react to different sorts of external things, I could figure out how to do something to make him do what I want to do. Um, I could interact with him in a way that in theory, at least in the science fiction world, seems to like, it seems to push toward the idea that if I get really, really good at it, I could make exactly what I want to happen without, without actually having access to him or his will or his, in, his internal processes or something like that. It's not that there's something different about I, it's not that, that I'm not, I haven't learned some new power after practicing about how to, I haven't learned some new power about uh, having some mental access or internal access to who Father Jonah is. I've just learned enough about him to figure out, okay, I think if I do it this way, I can probably get him to do something. Okay, so there's a way in which, if we think about what we talked about here, like my knowledge is in a certain way passive. I receive things from outside of me and that's where my knowledge of the world outside of me comes from. It's in receiving things from outside of me, you know, photons, sensory experiences, that I start to build up my knowledge of the world. And it is by changing things in the world, by picking up a piece of paper and manipulating it and folding it uh, and, and writing on it, that I can do things in the world. Or just, you know, using my voice to yell out loudly, but there's a way in which in order for me to 
receive that sensory data in interaction with the world, something about me changes. There's a, like there's actual physical energy, things like that. And in acting into the world, something about me changes. And, that, and I change something in the world. There's a way in which I'm not exactly the same person right now that I was at the beginning of this talk. Like I said, stress, the digestive problem is, you know, uh, the digestive system is probably working okay, maybe not like perfectly. So some of the food I ate earlier is now further digest. I'm sweating a bit, so I probably lost a bit of mass. Like I'm the, still the same person. I'm still Father Thomas Davenport. I still have the same proper human, uh, probably human rational soul, but there's something like something about me has changed, both on the material order and in the sense of I just know things now that I didn't know 10 minutes ago. Like I didn't really know exactly whether I was going to throw the paper airplane around. I was kind of deciding at the last minute. Um, so now I know I did. So there are things about uh, about me. There's so both in the, the physical aspect and in a certain sense in my my imagination and in my rational uh, uh, capacities. There's new information about reality that I have now that I didn't have ten minutes ago. All right. So that's the like the broad picture of human knowledge I want to focus on. The idea that it's 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 receptive from the outside and that the human will, particularly, I mean, setting aside sort of internal thoughts when we want to do things in the world, it involves changes in other things. And both of those processes involve, in some sense, changes in ourselves. That we change as we think, uh, as, 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 we, as we learn, and as we act. And that's, in a certain sense, how, like, the very experience that we have of time, the very experience that we have of past, present, and future, is intimately linked with the fact that I'm not exactly the same material structure. Um, not to, you know, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm not exactly the same person in all, in every single detail from one moment to the next. There are changes in me constantly going, mental, physical, and I'm aware of those changes. And that's the way in which I understand how time flows. And I would argue, and I'm not going to go into this whole detail. There's a way in which that's how that's that's how we understand all change working. That. We, we uh, all time working, that we see time as this, this change. We, we, we recognize time when we see things changing in the world and we can measure time when we compare the way that things change in the world. There's a way in which, you know, particularly the theoretical physicist in me likes to imagine that I know how to think about the world as a disembodied brain, that I can sort of step outside of the world and see the world from like a physics perspective that is somehow not actually linked up with all this physicality. It doesn't actually depend on this passive, active, reactive sense. Um, that, you know, there's, there's the part of every theoretical physicist that wants to be the, the, Platonist, the Platonist mind. Um, and it just turns out that we're not that, right? We can, we can kind of try to guess what that might be like, but that's not actually who we are. And it's also, you know, there's a certain sense in which the, the, the probably even worse, sometimes the theoretical physics Physicist wants to think that if we could be that, then we'd really be doing science. That, that science would be us in the abstract looking at the perfect picture of the world, and that's really what science is. When, if you actually you know, talk to people who do experiments, you realize that's not at all what science is. That science is very much about the physical interaction with things around you. And the, um, the I mean, so there's a, a phrase I'm completely stealing from, from Dr. Daniel DeHaan, uh, embodied rational control. It's in a forthcoming article he has an argument about the pat, like the human powers necessary to even do a scientific experiment. 
And so the idea that there is something about this interaction that leads to the knowledge, like the best knowledge that we have is not rooted in some platonic ideal of figuring out how to become a disembodied brain that can see everything, but in the very interaction with the physical world, using what our natural capacities are to do what we do best. Okay, so um, turns out uh, God is not uh, a Dominican friar. Uh, he's not a physicist. Uh, he's not a, a human being. He's not a physical being. He's not a created being. And so we can't presume that, you know, the silly ideas that come from a Dominican friar who happens to be a physicist uh, uh, correspond exactly to God's way of knowing things. Now, there are different ways that you could approach this. There are really good and strong philosophical arguments for arguing about how to think about who God would have to be to make sense of how the world works. Um, and I think those are good and compelling, but I'm not going to go down that road. Um, I think uh, in some sense, I want to be helpful to shift, shift the tone a little bit and draw on the scriptures as a foundation for what are kind of what are what are, what is the instincts about who God is and how God knows and how he interacts with us um, that, uh, that that we draw from the scriptures. The two passages I want to focus on are, are Psalm 139. Uh, that's the first one. Uh, o Lord, you search me and you know me. You know my resting and my rising. You discern my purpose from afar. You mark when I walk or lie down. All my ways lie open to you. Before ever a word is on my tongue, you know it, O Lord, through and through. Behind and before you besiege me, your hand ever laid upon me. Too wonderful for me this knowledge, too high beyond my reach. And, uh, yep, skipping ahead a little bit. Um, already you knew my soul. My body held no secret from you when I was being fashioned in secret and molded in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw all my actions. They were all of them written in your book. Every one of my days was decreed before one of them came into being. The second passage is actually the passage that, that, uh, Dr. Lunin, uh, quoted, uh, um, um, last night, uh, um, oh, two nights ago, uh, from, from Paul speaking in Athens uh, from Acts. And his, uh, the description he has of God that he's trying to give to the Athenians. The God who made the world and all that is in it, the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in sanctuaries made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands because he needs anything. Rather, it is he who gives to everyth everyone life and breath and everything. He made from one the whole human race to dwell on the entire surface of the earth. And he fixed the ordered seasons and the boundaries of their regions so that people might seek God, even perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your poets have said, for we too are his offspring. So with that instinct, then, like building up that instinct, there's something in those passages about the depths of God's knowledge, right? That it's not, um, there's a sense in which um, God has knowledge of us better than we have of ourselves, right? So the thing that I am most familiar with, God knows better than me. Um, uh, and that that knowledge seems to transcend time in some way. Before I ever existed, he had knowledge of me. What's going to happen, what, what I'm going to do in the future, he has knowledge of. And he has not just sort of knowledge, but sort of a, 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 a care for it in a certain sense. And that, so there's a certain sense in which God is deeply uh, aware of and, and interested in and involved in 
all that I am and all that I do. Uh, and in Paul, we see uh, a, a similar sentiment, the idea that right, it is he who gives everyone life and breath and everything, right? That everything that exists somehow is from him and depends on him. It is in him that we live and move and have our being. So there's a way in which God's knowledge of Father Jonah is not like my knowledge of Father Jonah. I have external knowledge by which I try to perceive what's going on, whereas Father Jonah knows himself way better than I do, and God knows him even better. God has some sort of internal access to who he is in his full depths, who he has been, who he will be, in a way that is not true of me and even not true of him. So if we kind of try to extend from that then, right, we can say something similar about what I was talking about at the beginning. God knows that there are three people sitting in the front row right now, but not because there is some sense data that hits the divine senses and influences the divine brain uh, by which the divine intellect knows. He knows that there are three people there in the front row because their very bodies, their very uh, biological processes, their very intellectual, rational powers, everything that is them and is part of them and, and associated with them is only there because God is active in bringing it, it into being and holding it there, right? So right now, God is freely choosing to, to do something in the world not throw some paper airplane really poorly across the uh, across the, uh, uh, the, 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 the the room, but to hold these three people and the rest of us and the chairs and the air and the room itself and, and hold, like make these things be what they are and do what they do. Um, all like, you know, Paul is specifically talking about the human beings living and moving and having their being uh, in God, um, but, there's a sense in which the, the Christian tradition has extended this to, to everything. Everything has this, this radical dependence upon God. And if we think about, okay, so that also means that, okay, at the beginning of the talk, God knew there were three people in the room, or three people in the front row, for roughly the same reason. If, if he, he had that direct, he had that direct um, causative uh, um, uh, activity by which they were, being there at the beginning of the talk and presuming that there will be three people in the 10 minutes from now, um, he'll be doing the same thing. And so there's a certain sense in which at least uh, qualitatively, God has the same type of relationship to the three people in the front row at the beginning of the talk now and you know 10 minutes from now. But is there a sense in which we might still want to, like I've still been talking about that as past, present and future. Is there a way in which we'd want to distinguish that in God? Does God see it as past, present, and future? Well, if you recall, right, how do we actually access past, present, and future? Because we're different. I'm, a, I'm slightly different at the beginning of the talk versus now. Now it keeps changing. Uh, versus 10 minutes ago. I might, the, the, 10 minutes, the, the 10 minutes ago from the beginning of the talk might actually be in the past now. So I don't know. But, but, but God, uh, God does not change, Right. God is you know, classically understood, drawing on, on passages of the scripture and the, and, and the reflections of the church father. God is immutable. God is not the sort of being that can go under, that undergo change. His 
Unity and perfection are so perfect that there is nothing in him that needs changing and nothing in him that could change. He is this immutable perfection. And in one sense, in an abstract sense, that sounds nice, but that means that, right, that God has exactly the same relationship to, you know, the past, the present, and the future, uh, because he is the same being interacting with them without change at, in the past and in the present and in the future. God is the same. God is this unchanging. Um, and so his, the, um, the relationship he has with every being, uh, um, in some sense, doesn't change. But that, there's a, there, in, in one sense, that's, you know, that started out sounding plausible. It, it's still, it's a little bit plausible, but this is the point at which it's not uncommon where, where people start to get a little bit worried. And it's not uncommon, in, in, you know, historically and today, Christians have, have struggled over this. Well, how do we, fit, like, in particular, this idea that, right, well, if God is not affected by me, then like, that seems like he's impassive, right? If I said to you that I am unmoved by anything you have said to me for the last, you know, 20 years, uh, then that's not a very nice thing to say, right? If I am unmoved by some argument or if I am unchanged by my relationship with somebody, that's kind of a bad thing. What uh, this is, this is, I think, the, one of the first places where we see this distinction where if we start to think about God as if he were in God's knowledge and, and action in things, as if he were like us, we start to, we, uh, we, uh, uh, it starts to break down. Because for us, yes, if I am not affected by someone, I will not know them. Like if I walked in here with my eyes closed and never opened them and kind of and, and, and pinched my ears, I wouldn't really know who's here. I might guess, but I wouldn't have knowledge of, uh, of the people that are here. And if, unless I am changed by the people that are around me, I don't actually know them. Um, and if I don't, if I'm not changed by them, I wouldn't even know to love someone, to, to, to want to get to know somebody better, to, to be moved by somebody is the, the first step towards coming to love someone in the human, uh, in the human condition, right? So that we receive and then act in the world. First, we, we receive in our knowledge and then we act and choose to do things and the the best thing that we can do for, particularly for a person, is to love them. But for God, it's not like that. God does not need to receive things to know you. God doesn't need to react to you to know you better than you know yourself. And in addition, you wouldn't even be unless God acted first. And so unless God wills for you to be, there would be no actual thing there, you, uh, and so it is, in fact, because of God's love, the will, God's will in God's love, that we exist. So while there's a sense in which this in unchangeableness and immutability from a kind of human perspective sounds impersonal, it is because of this, the nature of this relationship God has with the created order that he actually loves things more intimately than we could ever love them ourselves. He knows them more intimately and loves them more intimately and holds them into being. And I think this is the, the, if the a, a key takeaway point is the idea that the more that we, we the more that we have an instinct to want to think about God reacting to things, the more we start to bring him down to our level. And the more we start to bring him down to our level, 
the more we start to thinking about him, not as God, but as just a really, really powerful human being, a really, really powerful uh, physicist who just has a p ability to predict what's going on because he's really good at observing things. Or, you know, a really powerful supercomputer who can calculate every single possibility and pick the, and, and, and manipulate the situation to be the one that he wants. There's a sense in which it is the, it is the very thing that seems to make God impersonal that actually makes him more personal than we could possibly get our head around. So what does this then mean for the idea of if, if God does really have this kind of knowledge of not just each and every one of us, but each and every thing, then there's a certain sense in which God does know the future. God knows everything that will happen. So, you know, on the categories that we were talking about in the last few days, on an epistemic sense, the future is determined, right? It is, it is known. There is a being in existence that knows what the future will be. But the nature of that knowledge is not like our knowledge that's built upon the interaction, uh, that is built on the, the level of acting and interacting in the world and making judgments about the future based off of the, the, based off of the internal interactions. His knowledge is like the knowledge I have of the fact that there are right now, at this very moment, three people sitting here. His knowledge is a knowledge of, of vision in the present, such that we, such that it is the fact that he sees right now that I'm trying to figure out how to tie the loose ends in the last five minutes here, uh, that the fact that he knows he sees that right now doesn't change the fact that I'm trying really hard to actually do this, that I'm reacting to the sign that was put up in the, in the back and trying to think through how to come to the conclusion. Like both of those things, um, uh, his, his knowledge uh, does not change the nature of me and my activity. And secondly, um, his activity in me doesn't change the nature of that activity either. And I think this is a way, this is, this is I think the part that is often most difficult. Because how can something be a cause without changing the thing in front of it and changing itself? Because the only things we ever see in the world as causes are things that change and are changed. So how is it that you can have something that is able to cause without being changed and able to cause something without forcing it? To cause something and to, to bring something to be in a way that is not like the external cause I was trying to, the now gone Father Jonah, uh, get Father Jonah to, 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 to get coffee, in which I was trying to send external signals to him to, so that he might change internally and act. But that the sort of activity that comes from the very interior of us. What do I mean by that? So in, in the Thomistic tradition, uh, in, in more broadly in, in the Catholic tradition, there's this idea of that there's a primary and secondary causality. That the fact that the reason there are three people in the front row is, is, is because God is active is not mean that they are, they are therefore just his puppets. That there is a certain sense in which God's activity is the sort of activity that allows the three people in the front row to be human beings and to be the sort of people that would want to come to a conference uh, and sit in the front row uh, and, and listen to a talk on problems. Like it, it, is, it is the sort of activity that makes possible the very nature that they have, all the different powers that they have, and all the different activities and actions of that power in such a way that it doesn't, it doesn't 
um, it doesn't just it doesn't change the nature of that person or change the nature of that activity, but very allows that activity to happen. This idea that is so this in this notion of primary secondary causality, it's it's utterly unfamiliar to us because it's just not a way that we can act in the world. We can't be primary causes in the world. Um, I can't I uh, um, I can't just will that paper, this piece of paper to fold into a paper airplane. I have to go engage with it from the outside. Whereas there is something unique and, and intimate about God's creative action that brings things into being and makes them the sorts of things that actually act and cause in the world. And so his causality is not sort of exterior and it's not in a certain sense sort of violent or pushing or pulling, it is interior and has a certain gentleness to it and that his activity allows us to be who we are and do what it is that we do. Now, this is in many ways opening a huge can of worms. There's a whole lot of other questions that will come that, that come up about how it is that God's knowledge of the future and what his plan for the future is, is compatible with this interior, uh, is compatible with our actually being free creatures. And there's a certain sense in which um, there are a range of ways people have tried to address this question. And there are a range, a range of ways within the church people have tried to grapple with this sort of idea. But I think the, 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 the short version of the, the vision of this that I find most compelling coming out of St. Thomas Aquinas uh, and kind of Thomistic tradition is that there is something just unfamiliar and mysterious, but not incoherent about this idea that that God in his providence, the things that God ordains to happen, that God can will things to happen in the world in a way that he knows what will happen. And yet they actually are by chance or free or not, not forced in that way. And that is uh, a mysterious way that is, that is a mysterious and unfamiliar thing to us because it's not the way that we have ever experienced interaction and causation in the world. But there, there's a certain sense in which the very possibility of interaction and causation in the world depends upon this higher, this, this higher level of God's activity to make the very world be the sort of place that we can be causes and be actors in the world. So there's a certain sense in which it is, it is by being both unchanging and immutable and yet more present and intimate to us as individuals that we are able to be actual actors in the world and participate in the actual activity and changes and, and, and um, uh, development of the world, our relationships with one another, and ultimately our relationship with him. So I think I'm going to stop there. Um, I hope this was helpful and I'm happy to take some questions.